Al Jazeera Podcasts. European Union foreign ministers meet to discuss the Red Sea crisis, the Gaza war and Ukraine. Now there's unity on some issues, but sharp division on others. Is it possible for the bloc of 27 states to have a shared or meaningful foreign policy? I'm Nastasia Tay and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Oh, well, let's now go to our guests. First up, Suzanne Lynch. She's the Politico News Organization's chief Brussels correspondent. She joins us now from there. In Barcelona, we have Julian Barnes-Dacey, the director of the Middle East and North Africa program of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And in Berlin, we have Ben Aras, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of BNE IntelliNews, a business media company focusing on emerging markets. Thanks so much for joining us all on Inside Story. Now, when it comes to the war on Gaza, we know there have been deep divisions, as we've just been reporting. But that division is over a ceasefire. It seems from what we're hearing in Brussels, there is now some unity over what may happen that the, the so-called day after. Even Germany, now a staunch supporter of Israel from the beginning, is speaking about a two-state solution. So we're talking about a monthly meeting of EU foreign ministers, but they do have some special guests this month, I see. And there's ostensibly some kind of draft roadmap to peace that's going to be discussed. Julian, is the EU fighting for relevance here or has what's happened in the Red Sea over the last little while, has that perhaps lit a fire under some EU leaders, do you think? Well, I think the, the, the crisis in Gaza has, has really exposed the, the, the sense of European irrelevance and weakness in the Middle East, at least. Um, there's obviously um, a, a lot else happening in the world and a lot of places where questions are asked about how important and how relevant Europeans are. But suddenly what's happening in the Middle East, uh, in the Gaza war, uh, the Europeans have very much been at the bottom of the ladder in terms of importance. It, it's, it's the Arab states, it's Iran, it's Israel, it's the U.S., and then some way behind it, the Europeans who don't really have a position and they don't really bring much to the table. So there are a lot of questions being asked. And, and I would question somewhat the sense of new coherence behind a, a, a two-state solution track. I mean, that's something they've all symbolically said for months, for years. Uh, the question is, will they do anything to, to push it in that direction? What are they prepared to leverage in terms of their relations with the Palestinians, with the Israelis, with the Arab states? And there are huge divisions uh, underlying that still. So there's a long way to go before we really talk about a coherent European position here. Oh, it certainly sounds like it. Well, just looking briefly before we move on to, to the broader situation in Gaza, I want to focus a little bit on what's happening in the Red Sea. Now, the Houthis there have said their actions in the Red Sea are a direct consequence of the war on Gaza. But are EU foreign ministers actually making that link? From the sounds of things, Ben, it does feel like they're being treated almost as separate issues. Separate issues. Um, I, they're, they're, I think they're definitely linked um, the, the, the Houthis have been uh, closing down and, and taking sides, uh, targeting uh, Israeli ships. Um, but at the same time, they're, they're letting uh, Chinese and Russian ships go through. And, you know, to my mind, this is a longstanding dispute and uh, rivalry or, or um, bad relations between the Houthis and, and the Israelis. But, I mean, it's also getting caught up in the, in the wider conflict that we have in Europe. Um, with the showdown between between Russia and the West, um, China's involved in that as well. 
And to that extent, they, they have been accused of uh, playing sides, of being used as a tool, um, a wider tool uh, in, in Putin's campaign against the, the states. So the situation is getting rapidly more complicated as all these factors come in. Well, let me bring in Suzanne here. Suzanne, do you think that what's happening in the Red Sea is perhaps an opportunity to, to find some kind of European unity then on, on maritime issues when they are so divided on other things? I think the issue in the Red Sea is actually more contentious because within the EU, you've got certain member states who have a very strong military presence, a very strong defence identity, and you've others who are neutral, who are not members of NATO. So they are certainly not going to want to get involved in anything that they feel is too military that might escalate the situation. So yes, it's part of the discussion that's happening just across the road from me here in Brussels today about uh, some kind of an EU mission in the Red Sea. France, Germany and Italy, the three biggest countries are spearheading that. But they already, you know, as their own countries, they already have a strong presence there. We've had Belgium said it's going to kind of add, you know, tack along to that as well. Um, but the discussion is going to be about uh, making this part of an existing mission rather than starting a whole new uh, initiative in the Red Sea. I don't think there's going to be an appetite uh, for that at EU level. Uh, it's not what the EU is about, really. You know, it, that's kind of more the job of NATO or a military alliance. So I think that is going to be controversial, even though, as you say there, it is on the agenda. So let's see if Italy, France and Germany get sufficient uh, buy-in for that from other EU countries today. So just to be clear, that the naval mission that we're talking about here is separate from the US-led naval mission that's already taking place in the Red Sea. That's Operation Prosperity Guardian. That was a US-led mission. But even though a number of EU members did sign up to Operation Prosperity Guardian, it felt like very few, if, if any, actually deployed. I've been wondering, then, was this a capacity issue for the EU or was it a political one? Was this about perhaps US leadership? We should cycle back a little bit. I mean, you said in your preamble the EU is set up as a trade club, and essentially it remains that. There, there is no sort of EU government per se. I mean, you have people like Joseph Borrell, who's nominally the, uh, the foreign minister, but the EU's mandate is only to make foreign policy as far as trade is concerned. So the system works extremely well when things are going well and everyone's making money. However, when we come to crises like this, then there isn't actually a, there's no European army, there's no EU army. And so at the end of the day, the member states, you know, they make a sovereign decision to get involved militarily. And in this case, what they like to do is try and act in unison and act and represent the EU. But at the end of the day, it's a collection of individual countries making this decision. And uh, as we saw with the, with the US-led um, military um, initiative to try and bring the fighting to end, I mean, people are coming in ad hoc at the level of you know, each nation. And so we have a very confused situation here. And I think what, what will end up happening is individual countries, powerful military ones like, like, uh, like Germany, um, may send forces. And they would like to do it in cooperation with the rest of the EU because they see themselves as a club. But it's not a government. It's not a government that can make a decision like you know, everybody has to contribute, you know, 100 ships or 200 mm -hmm. soldiers or whatever it is to send them. And so what we're seeing in Brussels now is this, this discussion where the sovereigns have made up their mind and they're trying to coordinate with their friends in the EU and then do something with the collective front. But you'll see only certain countries actually actively participating. And each country has a different view, a different level of enthusiasm for this.
Well, as I understand it, the, the document around this mission that's been floating around Brussels, it proposes sending, and I'm quoting here, at least three warships with multi-mission capabilities, and that could happen as early as next month. We've been talking about some of the countries who've been saying they might deploy. My understanding is that those, those countries might then cycle through. You might have other countries then sending in other ships and then those other countries pulling their ships out. Julian, what should we make of all of this? Is this all being primarily driven by economic concerns? Absolutely, I think. Here in the, what's happened in the Red Sea, it's about the maritime shipping routes. Um, it's about keeping them open. There is obviously a concern and a fear that if the Houthis do manage to keep those permanently closed, that will have a knock-on inflationary effect on Europe. Uh, so, so that's what's driving this here. Uh, the nature of how it's playing out, I, I, I think, is driven by, by some of the concerns laid out by, by Ben and, and Suzanne. But I think, you know, fundamentally, the Europeans want to do some kind of monitoring mission here that pushes the Houthis back. I don't think their real desire uh, is to get engaged with the same kind of military offensive dimension that the Americans have, have pushed for here. And I think that's one of the key divisions as well. And we saw that in the, in the Persian Gulf a couple of years ago after Iranian attacks as well. The Europeans believe that they can take a more middle ground position uh, that allows them to keep the space open, but doesn't risk drawing them into the same level of conflict uh, that the Americans are now embarking on amid a broader regional conflict, where obviously there's a lot of concern about the, the, the dangers of this spiraling out of control. Of course. Well, Suzanne, then let me ask you, do you have a sense of, of if the US at all was in consultation with its EU allies before deciding to take those those strikes on Houthi positions in Yemen. Obviously, there have been huge concerns about escalation, and the EU is, is directly involved, given the, 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 the geography and, and the Suez Canal. What, what conversations are going on right now between Washington and Brussels? Yeah, I think there are definitely conversations going on, particularly between national capitals of those big countries you mentioned who have already sent, you know, military help. So France, Germany, the, Italy, the G7 countries, and then NATO, which is also based here in Brussels, but not all EU member states, most of them, but not all are members of NATO. There are conversations happening there as well. So, yes, there are conversations going on about this. But the EU, as has been said already, the EU as a bloc is not going to decide uh, to send a military mission into the Red Sea because mm. certain countries are going to block that. The neutral countries uh, are going to block that. They don't want to escalate the situation. But, you know, as you say here, there will be um, a willingness by some countries to go that bit further. And as you're right. I mean, the geography here is interesting. The EU is right beside this. Uh, but economically, it is affecting all of the, the West, different countries, oh. including the US. But I do think that the US perspective here is very much weighing on a, a Opinion here in Brussels, and that's because there's a growing frustration among a number of countries. is not doing enough to persuade Israel to stop the mm -hmm. offensive on Gaza. It's as simple as that. And it is significant that today we have the Israeli foreign minister here in Brussels. We're also going to have a senior Palestinian. They're not going to meet. But we also have the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia, Egypt. That is very unusual to have that mixture of people here today. So it's showing that the EU does want to shape events, even though it's not going to come forward with this huge military capability, it feels that it does among its 27, its, its collective weight, that it can try and politically uh, bring some pressure, particularly on Israel, um, to maybe restrain a bit more. I think there's been a lot of consternation about the comment from Benjamin Netanyahu in the last few days about not wanting a two-state solution, mm. even though, as has been said, you know, 
people have lost faith in the idea of the two-state solution. That is the official policy of the EU and the United States. So for Netanyahu to come out and say that publicly, I think people are worried here that the US is not using the influence that everyone knows it has on Israel effectively enough. And that's why the EU is trying to uh, get these senior figures around the table and trying to kind of affect a bit more change. That's really interesting. As the death toll has mounted and as this war has continued, we have seen some distinct shifts in the rhetoric from some EU leaders, Macron noticeably, the French president. Uh, Julian, are you seeing and hearing that elsewhere? Well, I think, as Suzanne says, there's a lot of uh, frustration and unhappiness with, with, with obviously, the, the, the recent statements by, by Netanyahu ruling out the prospect of a Palestinian state and a political track. There's obviously immense concern about the, the, the death toll, 25,000 Palestinians killed now. But there are still huge divisions, and I don't think the Europeans are coming to a place well, they're really going to push together. You have a number of states calling for a ceasefire, saying that this has to end now. But you have a number of very important states, the Germans, the Austrians, the Hungarians, who continue to block a more meaningful push against the Israelis from a European perspective. So until you don't have that unity amongst the 27, it really inhibits the, the ability of, of, of the EU as a whole to, to push forward a line here and try and work with the Americans or the Arab states to, to put pressure on the on the Israelis or on the, or on the Palestinians. Um, Burrell is coming out very loudly at the moment. He's making some bold statements about what needs to be done and, and the drivers and the causes of the problem. But he very much speaks for himself, um, as opposed for the, the 27. And I think that's obviously the big weakness of the European position here. Uh, you mentioned Burrell there, and I was looking at some of his comments today. I mean, they're increasingly, the tone of that is increasingly critical of Israel. On Monday, he said, uh, when he was talking about a two-state solution and, and Netanyahu's pushback on that, he said, what are the other solutions they have in mind? Make all the Palestinians leave, kill all of them. The way they are destroying Hamas is not the way to do it. They are sealing the hate for generations. I mean, that's, that's a really, really strong statement. Suzanne, do you think we're getting some insight here into Burrell's personal views on the conflict? Yeah, it's, he's an interesting figure. He's the EU's top diplomat. He's a, he's Spanish. He's from a socialist uh, background. So he is very he has always been more on the pro-Palestinian side. Uh, he won't say that probably, but that that's the reality. So it's not a surprise really he's coming out with those statements. But I think it does get to the problem with the EU and foreign policy. Who speaks for the EU? Because in the EU, you have all these institutions that are around me here at Brussels. You've got the European Council, you've got the EAS, you've got the European Commission, with different people heading those institutions. So we saw Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, come out strongly at the beginning for Israel. Then we have Josef Borrell, who's based a couple of doors down, saying something completely different. So this is the problem for the EU when it comes to foreign policy. There isn't somebody who's the president of Europe who's speaking for Europe. And now on this issue, we're seeing big divisions, I think, personally and politically, between, for example, von der Leyen, a German politician, and Borrell, a Spanish politician, uh, from different political traditions. So that, that is then filtering down among member states as well. And I think that is adding to this sense of incoherence. And frankly, they are not in agreement. Germany is still on a very, very different page than Belgium, Spain and Ireland. Uh, and we saw this in the way into the meetings this morning here in Brussels, some very different statements from foreign ministers. I don't see how that's going to be resolved. If anything, this um, current conflict in the Middle East is just underscoring the divisions that are in the EU about this topic. Suzanne, the divisions that you were talking about there primarily relate to, to the war on Gaza. And I'm wondering about whether those 
divisions are replicated when it comes to, to dealing with the, the Red Sea and, and dealing with the Houthis and, and the conflict in, in Yemen, and whether or not those are being linked. Ben, let me ask you for your take on that. Well, Germany in particular is in an extremely difficult position. I mean, they've been treating this whole trouble, uh, this whole problem with, with kid gloves because particularly von der Leyen, who came out and made very strong statements, but technically it falls to Borrell to make foreign policy or represent the EU, the EU as a body uh, in foreign policy, and that she was encroaching into his territory. Uh, and indeed her staff, I think some 800 members of her staff complained and, and formally published this letter saying that she should back off. But obviously Germany doesn't want to open itself to the charge of anti-Semitism. Uh, given the legacy of the Second World War, and so they're, they're being very, very cautious. But um, as a colleague from, from Polisco was saying, you know, the divisions within Europe uh, are multifold. Everyone has a different position. And like I said before, it comes back to the fact that, you know, there is no sort of government here, that there's no unity, that any decision that you make has to be approved by all 27 members, and so everyone has a veto on it. And so it's herding cats, basically, to get anything um, out. And when you have a crisis like this, and a difficult one with lots of very sensitive topics uh, that affect directly the member states in different ways, then getting a consensus is extremely difficult. And at the end of the day, I think coming back to the military action that you know Europe as a whole continues to shelter under the US security umbrella. Um, there's been complaints on the American side that people are not paying enough, they're not meeting their 2% of GDP commitments. And again, here we are in a situation where military is called for because the Red Sea, um, that channel, the Suez Canal, 10% uh, of global trade goes through there. And of course, it ends up in the Mediterranean. So for the EU, this is crucial crucial trade and they need to keep it open somehow um but what's happening is they're letting the americans take the lead and that they're now saying look but our interests are affected here so we have to get involved somehow and when we do that we're going to try that do that as a team but getting the team to to all you know sit in the same direction is, is proving sure. very difficult ben you say it's like herding cats and all of these cats have their own different concerns at home. Julian, how much do you think these positions that we're seeing within the EU are being driven by domestic interests? So I think uh, specifically on, on the Gaza war, there's a huge amount to, to which kind of we can talk about this being about domestic politics. I think the Red Sea is, is different, and I think actually there's probably a lot more unity on that issue uh, domestically amongst the leaders about the need to respond and, and for the Europeans to step up, albeit divisions about how the dimension of military use. But, but on Gaza, it, it plays into a lot of domestic politics. I mean, Germany, Austria, uh, it, it goes back to, to the historical legacy of, of the Second World War. You have states like Spain, Ireland, Belgium with, with a, a, a background of, of being close to the Palestinians. France obviously has a large uh, population with, with links to the Middle East. I mean, all of these are the issues that are playing out in domestic politics. Uh, they're very much shaping the narratives and the debates and, and, and pushing uh, different levers of pressure on, 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 on leaders. And we, I guess we saw this to a certain extent with Macron's shift from a pro-Israeli position mm -hmm. at, the, at the beginning um, towards a more, towards the call for a ceasefire. So absolutely, there's a strong element of domestic politics here. And that can't be uh, pushed aside with all the elections coming up, the European parliamentary elections. Uh, all of that is feeding into that debate. Sure. Given the amount of domestic pressure to try to, to find some kind of a resolution one way or the other from all the different, the different people and, and populations we're talking about in the EU, 
I'm wondering about how much influence the EU actually has to, to affect any kind of change at the moment. Uh, Julian, let me ask you about the, the amount of leverage you might think that the EU has, particularly with the Palestinians. They obviously send a huge amount of aid to the Palestinian Authority. Is it primarily through that, or, or is there a broader conversation here with other, re other regional actors? Well, I think there's two things. There's definitely the economic card, which is obviously Europe's traditional strength. They, they give a huge amount of aid uh, to the PA, the Palestinian Authority. They're also Israel's largest trading partner. Uh, so that, that gives them a lot of influence and a lot of clout. Um, but the question is, are they willing to, to politically deploy that? And if they were, then there would be political influence, because then there's a conversation to be had with the Arab state, with the Americans. I mean, then the Europeans would bring something to the table uh, that they might be able to use in partnership with other states. But the European position on the Palestinian aid issue, on the Israeli issue, they're divided on both issues. And it means that no one really takes them seriously. And they certainly don't bring military uh, might to the, t to the table. And because of the divisions amongst the 27, there's no unified political stance. Well, given the, the search for, for relevance here, as we were talking about at the beginning, and, and the, the need for the EU to try to find some kind of, of coherent stance on this, let me ask you, Suzanne, do you think any kind of EU reform is likely to try to create some kind of infrastructure for there to be a more coherent foreign policy position? Is there a conversation going on around that? What would that even look like? Yeah, there has been a conversation about this, and there always has been, about the need to, uh, at the moment, you need unanimous agreement from all countries to agree serious issues around foreign policy. So it means one country can block things. And that's, a lot of people thought a year ago, you know, that needed to be changed because Hungary was blocking a lot of policy on, on Russia and Ukraine. Now, how that would happen would be very complex because the EU had treaties and you would have to change that treaty and that could trigger a referendum in some countries like the Netherlands, Ireland, uh, for mm. example, and people don't want to do that. So they're trying now to find a way within the treaties without reopening all the legal texts. Uh, there's a few little options you could do that could change the rules around this. But then I think that has again made it, it was, that was an easier conversation on Russia and Ukraine when basically everyone agreed except one country. But now with the Middle East, You've got so many divisions on this um, that some countries won't be comfortable with the idea that this can be rammed through. They want this debate. They want to be able to restrain the EU if they don't agree with some ways it's going on the Middle East. So, look, foreign policy, then, apart from that, you've got the military dimension. That is very, very tricky because some people call for the European army, but some countries will not agree with that. They will mm. say that's not the job of the EU. It's a trading bloc, and, and they will veto that. So, um, yes, it's a discussion. But I think this actual divide over the Middle East has made it less likely, not more likely, that the EU is going to move towards a unified foreign policy. Given that's the case, Ben, let me give you the last say here. Is the EU losing influence and leverage in the region, given the, the deep divisions that we see and that, and that regional actors see? I think it is. Uh, I think the EU's in trouble that the uh, the war with Russia and particularly cutting off the gas, the cheap gas that powered the whole of the EU, particularly Germany, which then powered everyone else, has been a huge problem. And now it's suffering economically, but politically too. I mean, it's shown itself, you know, um, to be divided, uh, to not be consistent. Um, the, the whole von der Leyen thing backing Israel when, when other parts of, of uh, the EU were, were backing Palestine or at least calling for a ceasefire. 
um, has shown up to the rest of the world. The global south is looking at all of this and they're saying, well, look, you keep talking about values, but push comes to shove. You're just pursuing your interests or doing what the Americans tell you to do. Um, and so it's, it's been taken less seriously as a result. And mm -hmm. on the, the topic of reform, though, that's going to have to happen. Um, and the issue there is if, if Ukraine is admitted to the EU, then a third of what the EU does is the common agricultural policy. And mm -hmm. that's the amount of money that Ukraine will be entitled to under, common, uh, under current rules mean the, the EU budget will collapse. Um, the whole funding of the EU is going to have to be changed. And so if they're serious about letting Ukraine in, and it seems they are, then there has to be this reform and it needs to be root and branch. Uh, common agricultural policy needs to be done. The voting system, everyone's very unhappy with that because of the de facto mm -hmm. veto that everyone gets, uh, 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 Hungary has been exercising. So how you actually do it, because you have to have a unanimous agreement to make these changes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I don't see how it can be done. Uh, it well, needs to be done, but there can be well, it certainly sounds like it's a moment of, of reckoning, if certainly self-reckoning, for the European Union. Uh, ben Aris, Suzanne Lynch and Julian Barnes-Dacey, thank you so much for joining me here today on Inside Story. This episode was produced by Damod Fleming, Malakabe Motsepe, Veronica Pedrosa and Jim Gilchrist. Studio sound by Mohamed Osman. This programme was edited by Alex Kohler, David Enders and Joe DeFrias. Do be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Do tune in again on Tuesday for our next one. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, Holemia Sparrow's story, Almost Real, imagines a future where Canadian Indigenous people have created an AI trained on their traditional knowledge. She represents over 200 nations and over 30 language groups in the Confederation of Unceded Sovereign Indigenous Nations. This powerful being is stolen and forced to perform in Canada land. What now? A theme park. But instead of Mickey Mouse, it's Mr. Moose and Mounties. But a group of undercover operatives hatch a plan to get her back. We're going to Canada to save Almost Real. Will you help us? Almost Real on Necessary Tomorrows. A new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.